you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. Welcome, everybody. We got a full house today. One of the reasons why we have a full house today is because it's family Sunday. So we have all the kids with us here. All right, all the kids, wave, wave your hands. Hey, everybody. Awesome. Good job. I love the participation. It is okay if you guys make a little bit of noise. It is totally fine. Not only that, but... Whatever noise you come with is important here. You guys have important voices. So for the grown-ups who are used to some quieter church services, we're going to have to adjust our definition of freedom to maybe include a little bit of chaos. But that's okay, right? That's what we do. We make room for life here. So I just want to thank you guys for um, letting me preach this morning. It's an honor to be with you every Sunday here at Renovatus, um, but it is a double honor. <laughs> I, I, I have to restrain myself from saying, hi, look, hi, Amber. <laughs> um, it's a double honor to get up here and be able to give you guys some ideas that I've been thinking about and some, submit some ideas that I hope are going to be new and edifying in some way to your hearts. So if you guys don't mind, I would just like to pray for a second and just get centered. God, many of us here have been through seasons of faith and excitement about who you are, but also seasons of fear and anxiety about who you are. And I ask that you come near to us today as we listen with our hearts to the things that you are saying to us. And I confess that many times in my heart there are voices from outside experiences and internal chaos that sometimes talk louder than you. And sometimes those voices are stronger than I can silence. So in those moments, whenever they show up, I'm choosing to wait silently, and what I trust is your presence until we can find our way to each other. Be with us all here today. Breathe life into us and lavish your grace and your patience on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, it's been an interesting week for me in terms of preparing this message for for today. <laughs> Pastor Daniel called me about a week ago on Thursday and asked if I would preach so he can take care of his family this week. And I said yes, in part because I'm a team player, but I'm also an Enneagram 3. And I can't say no to a challenge. Yes, Crystal, I see you three. So after getting off the phone with Pastor Daniel, I thought that my challenge in preparing the sermon this week would just be the schedule and figuring out, you know, how to fit everything in the week. It takes me a while to prepare a message. There's a lot of stuff going on in our home schedule. Dan's been traveling a lot. I'm working on some special projects, which is super awesome. So I was confident that finishing was going to be the hardest part of this message. But when I read the lectionary, <laughs> I realized the timeline was the least of my worries. <laughs> I read the passages, and I was like, hmm, that's boring. 
So I text Pastor Daniel. I'm like, is it important to you that I stick to the lectionary? And he uh, answered, did you have something else on your heart? <laughs> a question with a question, right? Infuriatingly like Jesus. <laughs> so I text back, not necessarily. The lectionary just isn't speaking to me. So he basically responds, I don't mind a topical sermon. Try to stay inside the themes of Lent. <clears throat> so very pastorally, he sent me some tools. And then... He just basically set me free to prepare the sermon that I had on my heart. But that's not a challenge. <laughs> and if you're an Enneagram 3, there aren't, if you say there are no winners and losers, we're all just here playing for fun, we say, no, thank you. <laughs> so back to the lectionary I go. And that night, Dan, Dan comes home from a work trip for one day before turning around and leaving again. And so I shove the printed lectionary scriptures in his face, and I'm like, look at what I get to preach from. And in my mind, I'm thinking, these have to be the four worst scriptures, like, in all of the Bible. <laughs> and he reads them for a minute, and he looks up, and he goes, man, these are fantastic. I wish I was preaching. <laughs> Gauntlet throne. <laughs> Give me those papers back. I'm reading it again, and I'm annoyed. I'm scanning it, I'm rereading, and I'm starting to realize that I'm no longer bored by these passages. I'm starting to get some other feelings bubbling up inside, some anxiety, some frustration, some nervousness about what these things could mean. So here's an example of something that I'm talking about. This is one of the verses from the lectionary for today. Isaiah 55 talks about buying bread and milk without money or price. And in verse 6, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Now, I know for some of you, that's actually like burned in a wood panel on your house somewhere because you love that verse so much. But for me, it reignites all of my fear and paranoia that I've been afraid of my whole life that God is going somewhere and that I won't be able to find him. And I don't know when or why, but he'll be gone forever and it'll be too late to find him. Does that resonate with anyone? Do verses like this either inspire rational or irrational fears for anybody here? No, me? Just the only one? Okay. <laughs> cool, I'll go wrestle with that in the corner. <laughs> there are times when scriptures like this take me down a dark path into spiritually traumatic memories like this one. Okay, now you're tracking with me. A thief in the night, I can, all right. So some of you had this in their childhood. If you're not familiar with this film, it is basically a horror movie. Inspired by the book of Revelation, as interpreted by the 1960s and 70s evangelical movement. It portrays what life would, on earth would be like after Jesus came and raptured all the true Christians and left all the bad Christians and the heathens behind. If you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, the earth is a terrible place to be during this time. <clears throat> yeah, of course, thank you, Antoinette. You can verify. There are scary people in vans, as depicted here, 
driving around to capture you and haul you off to an 18th century style guillotine if you don't deny Christ. You guys are never going to let me preach on Family Sunday again, are you? <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm talking about my traumatic childhood and I'm just traumatizing all you here. Sorry about that. Uh, but I march on. So horrible things happen to people every second of this film. And family turns on each other, you can't trust anyone, and ultimately a horde of giant grasshoppers. Anybody remember this part? The grasshoppers come and arrive and eat all the food on the earth and everyone goes hungry. I want to introduce you to somebody. Yeah, right? In the bottom right-hand corner is eight-year-old Missy. She's never been allowed to watch Care Bears. She's never been allowed to watch My Little Pony or the Smurfs because those would channel the dark forces of the enemy straight into her little soul. But if you zoom in, that is the face of a child who has already in her young life seen all four movies in the Thief in the Night series and is haunted because of it. We all have things in our past that haunt us about our spiritual lives today, don't we? It's called being triggered. Now, I know that that word is a little controversial, so let's define our terms. Can we get that? There we go. Triggered. Experiencing a strong emotional reaction of fear, shock, anger, or worry, especially because you are made to remember something bad that has happened in the past. Based on this definition, I'm guessing many of you have read the Bible or encountered someone else's expression of faith, and all of a sudden you have an emotional reaction that takes you right back to the middle of a moment or a season of your life that scared you, or maybe broke your heart or shipwrecked your faith. For me, another one of those times was in my late teens and early 20s, where I spent years in a revival that was at its core really beautiful and pure and lovely. But with this particular mo movement based on holiness and repentance, I spent most of my time in church services hearing fiery messages from teachers and preachers that urged me to fast until I had a breakthrough, to pray until the miracle came, and to get the sin out and repent. And I did all those things over and over and over again. And a few of my friends fasted themselves into health crises. And other of my friends went on to have vibrant spiritual ministries that came out of that movement. And other friends had psychotic breaks from the pressure of that time. I spent most of my time there deeply anxious that God was angry with me and so angry that one day he would remove his presence from me and I'd no longer be able to find him. So when Isaiah tells me to seek the Lord while he may be found, sometimes I don't know what to do with that. When you go through massive amounts of spiritual pressure for years on end, how many of you can verify that it can be really hard to get back to some of these scriptures that were once used against you, either by a spiritual authority in your life or even by your own mind that just turned against you and became your worst enemy? I'm not saying that my whole time in the midst of the revival was defined by pain. There were a lot of glorious moments, but it has scars. And some of those scars, when you push on them, they hurt. 
Okay, so getting back to my sermon prep story, not done with that yet. I continue reading the lectionary passages. Psalm 63 is no help. 1 Corinthians 10, no help. Then I get to Luke 13 and I start to hear something new emerging from these readings. And I'd like to read it to you to see if you hear it too. Now people are bringing news to Jesus. I'm just going to preface this for a second. They're bringing news to Jesus of a massacre that Pilate committed at the temple in Galilee while Jesus while the Jews were worshiping or were sacrificing there. So that's the context for what you're about to hear. They say it a little bit poetically, so I just wanted to be really clear about what happened. Chapter 13 and verse 1. <clears throat> there were some present at the very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered In this way, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure on it. Then if it should, be, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Okay, so in order to unpack this passage, we need to dive into, the, into history for a little bit. You knew that was coming, because I'm here, so we're going to talk about it. (laughs) History. I love it. Um, Okay, so we have two contexts here. We have the audience within the story that Jesus is talking to, and we have the audience outside the story that Luke is talking to. So Luke is a fascinating book, because he's writing to a group of believers who have lived through some serious collective and communal trauma. This guy... That's Vespasian. He sacked the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And in addition to destroying the most iconic place of worship for the Jews, he also massacred its priests. By murdering the priests in Jerusalem, the entire Jewish tradition, which at this point included a sect called the Followers of the Way, who we now call Christians, they lost their leadership. So, As you know, when organized people lose their leadership, we panic. And out of every panic arises the bureaucrats. And in this spiritual crisis, the spiritual bureaucrats were called the Pharisees. And now, this might have seemed like a really good idea at the time, but the Pharisees decided that the best way to preserve the faith that was under threat was to systematize it. And the first step in systematizing was homogenizing making everyone act the same way. They wanted to codify the rules. If something seemed like a good idea, they wanted to make a rule about it. Anyone who thought that the Messiah had already come was not, on the, not towing the party line. <laughs> this wasn't across the board, but many Jewish communities where the Pharisees took over the systematizing process instead of instating new leadership. Anyone who believed that the Messiah had already come was forced to leave their spiritual community the Pharisees actually wrote a formal curse 
to be spoken at the end of every Shabbat service over those people. And many of the communities were encouraged, encouraged to sit Shiva for the disavowed believers. It's a funeral ritual, and it reaffirms the idea that these people are lost to us forever. You don't have to raise your hands, but has anyone here been spiritually disowned or kicked out of your spiritual family's house? That was Luke's audience. I think of them having lived through a deeply traumatic time, listening to this story about the Galileans who were murdered in their temple as they were bringing a sacrifice. And I wonder if Luke's audience was triggered too. I really doubt that this passage felt like a parable that you can just glean a story to pull from on a day when it comes in handy. Luke's audience was very triggerable. <laughs> so that's Luke's audience. Over here we have Jesus' audience. And in the Jesus story, some people, the Bible doesn't say who, come up to Jesus and tell him the news of the murders in the Galilean temple. Now don't forget, we're talking about Jesus of Galilee. This tragedy happened on his home turf, and he may have known some of the victims. But in that moment, he doesn't zero in on the news. Jesus is not triggered here. Instead, he reads their terrified minds, and he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? He answers his own question. He says, no. For those of us who grew up under a spiritual fear that we'd be doing all the right things, making all the right sacrifices, following all the right rules, and still be cut down and lose access to God, it, it feels good to hear Jesus say no right here. But he doesn't just say no. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And right there, Jesus uses one of the words that has haunted me from a thief in the night to the revival movement and beyond. Repent. Now, when I realized how deeply that word affected me, I needed a new way of thinking about repentance. If I'm going to be able to keep that word in my vocabulary, something needs to change. So, to begin this redefinition, I turned to botany, as one does. Now, I didn't realize how fascinating that botany was until I started researching certain aspects for this sermon. So, okay, the kids are here today with us. You guys might be smarter than me, so I want to ask you all a question. Can you guys name the basic parts of a flower? Oh, yes, Judah. The stem, that's a good one. Emmett, the leaves, yes, Samuel. The buds, Avery? Pollen? Yeah, oh my gosh, you got, okay, over here, Sean? Oh my gosh, you guys are so smart. Shiloh? The leaves? Yes, you guys nailed it! The petals, oh my gosh, we could go on for, Titus, please. The roots, oh my goodness, you guys nailed it all. That's all I know. If you guys come up with more, I wouldn't know if it's true or not. Oh, I'm sorry, yes, Dash? The branches, the branches. so good, yes, okay. But 
the, oh, Sean has one more. The pestle, yeah, oh, pistol? Yes, all of it. I am, <laughs> do you guys have any plant questions? See that gentleman in the back. <clears throat> okay, the first answer was the one we're gonna talk about today, it's the stem. Did you guys know that every kind of stem has a name? Let's look at the next one, the erect stem. Oh, go back, go back one. This guy just goes straight up in the air, right? Next slide, the ascending stem. These guys are kind of angled, right? They just, they, they grow not quite straight up, they go to the side. The next stem, the next stem is a prostrate stem. This guy just kind of lays on the ground. Did you guys know that there's also a repent stem? I know, right? Do you know why they're called a repent stem? Because these are the only stems in the plant kingdom who do not feel like they're living up to their plant potential and feel very guilty about it. <laughs> no, that's not the answer, is it? What do you guys see? What's unique about this stem right here? What do you guys see? Oh, yes, Marlo? Branches and leaves, but what's special about this one, Emmett? Nailed it. Repent stems never go far without putting down roots and bearing fruit. Do you guys see these little things called nodes? If you go to the next slide, they're circled in red. Most plants have nodes, and the node is the point at which the stem produces whatever its DNA tells it to whether it's leaves or flowers or fruit. And these nodes show up in the same place where the repent stem puts down its next set of roots. Whenever we talk about repentance, we don't ignore the most foundational definition of the word. Again, we pull out our dictionaries and we acknowledge that to repent is to be very sorry for something bad you have done in the past and wish you had not done it. That will always be part of the definition. However, I am no longer willing to accept the idea that repentance means carrying guilt and shame forward into every spiritual experience that I have from here to eternity. You know what else? Botanists don't call these stem structures or stem formats. They call them stem habits because it's not just the position of the stem, it's the ongoing growth pattern that defines it. And if you had asked eight-year-old Missy or 20-year-old Missy what living a life of repentance looks like, it would have looked a lot more like that prostrate stem up there. But now, thanks to Luke's passage, I think it might look a lot less than just laying on the ground and a lot more like getting low and digging deep and bearing fruit. And in that posture, we grow out, not up. So when Jesus gets the news about this tragedy, and he says, don't make this tragedy about your fear. Repent. I think he's saying you are sinning against your brother if you decide that a tragedy in his life is the consequence of a sin you've never seen him commit. You are sinning against yourself if you decide that the habit of your stem growth is to lord itself over above all the other stems in the kingdom of repentance. 
You are denying your DNA and you're trying to be something you're not. And speaking of bearing fruit, Jesus' very next words in, that Luke records is about the conversation between the farmer and the vine dresser. And it's really worth reading one more time, starting in verse 6. He says, <clears throat> He told this parable. A man in a fig tree planted his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit and found none. He said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put manure on it. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Okay, one more botany lesson. Okay, here's a picture of a fig tree. Fig trees are wild in their growth patterns. And it's hard to see in this picture, but in the next picture you can see more clearly that they have what are called aerial roots. Aerial roots are adventitious, which means they develop in unusual locations, most often by chance rather than on purpose. Botany fun. Our fig tree in Luke 13 is this representation of you and me. It's a wild, it's a wild little tree. Its roots are allowed to take whatever shape they wish to keep that tree alive and fruitful, and that little tree is still struggling to bear fruit. And in that scripture, we notice that the farmer and the vine dresser have been paying attention to this barren little fig tree for years. And not only that, they agree to take extra resources and lavish them on this little tree. And then also give it more time. Why? Because this little tree has an intrinsic existential purpose to bear figs, which in the ancient world was not just food, it was medicine. Here's the kind of fruit every one of us is called to bear. Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Has your heart ever been filled or healed by someone who exhibits these characteristics? Mine has. A lot of the people are in this room right now. If the musicians and the communion servers would join me up here, I take away two considerations from this passage in Luke. Number one, if your faith journey has somehow led you to live a life where you are assigning value judgments on other people's lives and tragedies because it somehow soothes your own fear, repent. Your stem habit is to get low, dig deep, and bear fruit. Number two, if your faith journey has been fraught with spiritual, emotional, or communal trauma, and you're in a place where scripture or Christianity or faith practices trigger you, you are not alone. And you are truly seen by a good farmer and a vine dresser who say to you, what do you need, little one? More time? More resources? It's yours, all of it, lavishly and patiently, the farmer and the vine dresser cheer for your wild, adventitious spirit. For your divine purpose 
is to fill and heal those around you. Would you all stand with me? Here at Renovatus, we believe that the communion table is the Lord's table and that it's open to everyone here. We have a cup for dipping at the front, but if you prefer a common cup for drinking so you can practice this expression of your faith the way the Lord has led you to do it, it's there for you as well. If you'd rather remain in your seat because this is new to you or this is a part of a hurtful history for you, that's okay too. Because wherever you are in your journey, you belong here. Would you all say the communion liturgy with me? This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have not been here and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it's the Lord who invites you and it is his will that those who want him should need him. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.